And this time I want to invite Julie Butcher, the chair of our search committee, up. And uh, she will introduce uh, Yosef. And I'll just grab a microphone here. So you can use that, and I'll give this one to you. Perfect. Just, okay, now pull. Now pull. There we go. Good morning, everyone. It is so encouraging to see so many of you out this Sunday morning on such a gorgeous day. So really happy to see all these uh, awesome faces. As David mentioned, my name is Julie Butcher. I have been the chair of the search committee, which has been active since last October. So it has been a journey of just being open to God's leading and open to his um, heart for our church. And so today I want to uh, introduce you to Yosef. As you know, we started this journey with a needs assessment, identifying what we thought we needed as a church congregation. And we had a very long list of things we were looking for that ultimately came into a role called the Associate Pastor of Next Gen Ministries. And this role will be responsible for the leadership overseeing children, youth, and college and careers. And so when we thought about who we were looking for as a candidate and we heard the needs of the church, there was many things that we put on our list. Um, one of which was someone that had a real heart for students. Someone that actually, and we said, God, if there was anyone that actually was living in the Tri-Cities and had a heart for Tri-Cities, that would be important for us as well. And while we don't want to be really picky, Lord, we'd really love a young family. And uh, we had many other things on our list. And Yosef and his wife, Jessica, and his son, Simeon, are here. And we want to introduce them to you. Uh, in particular, we'll introduce Yosef to you. And Yosef has been through a lot of interviews with us. So what I want to call this is a question and answer time, not an interview. Uh, Yosef comes to us with over 18 years of experience in ministry. He has a Master's of Divinity from Acts Seminary and is currently co-director of International Student Ministries, working with his wife at SFU. Yosef, why don't I call you up and uh, we will, I'll ask you a few questions and you can share your heart uh, with this congregation. So it's a real privilege to be able to introduce you to Yosef. And thank you for being here. Oh, we've got, you've got a microphone. It works. It yeah. works. Fantastic. <laughs> Good morning. This is an awesome congregation. So we had uh, the first question we thought we would put to Yosef, not, not an interview, just, uh, you know, sure. because we want to get to know you, uh, is tell us a little about yourself and your journey of faith. Yeah, as uh, Julie mentioned, first I want to say we are thankful that we are here. As Julie mentioned, my name is Yosef. Uh, my family name is Mamuller. It's a little bit difficult, I think. Uh, I am from Iran. I have been in Canada since 2004. Um, when I came to Canada, I was only 24 years old. Um, uh, the reason that I came to Canada, just to have a better life. Uh, however, God had different plan for me, and his plan was not an easy plan for me. Um, so my journey started um, in 2004. I became a refugee. And I came to Canada, and Canadian government did not accept my case. Uh, so they sent me to prison, so I was there for four months uh, at the age 24. It was there that God uh, basically called one of his servants, who I didn't know him. Uh, he was a pastor. 
he was uh, working as a chaplain in prison, and he brought for me a Persian Bible. It was there that God helped me, convinced me to start to read the Bible. And um, I should say it was not an easy task for me to understand the Bible, and specifically in my situation in the prison. Um, uh, I was Muslim back. I had a Muslim background. I also carry on my Persian background with me, and reading the scripture was not easy task for me to basically um, put away all my life and believe in something new. But it was there that the Holy Spirit uh, convinced me that Jesus is uh, the Word of God. He was with God and He is God. It was there that I was convinced that I am a sinner and I need healer. And also it was there that God called me uh, to a greater task, uh, to follow his mission, uh, which was completely different, uh, um, you know, from the things that I had in my mind when I was going to come to Canada. And when I left the prison, um, I uh, pursued uh, Christianity. I went to college, as Julie mentioned. I finished my Master of Divinity at Act Seminaries. Uh, that's a little bit about my faith background. Uh, about my family background, I am coming from a multicultural family background. My father is Kurdish uh, and Persian, and my mother is uh, half Kurdish, half Persian, half Azeri from Azerbaijan, the Soviet Union countries. Um, by God's grace, most of my family members came to Christ, and they live here in Port Kukutlam. Um, and three years ago, God showed grace one more time to me, and uh, Jessica and I, we brought together by God's grace, and we married, and we have our son, Simeon. That's a little bit about my family and our faith journey. Thanks, Yosef. I love just the story of God reaching us in any place around the world in all circumstances, so it's a great, great story. The next question is, what has drawn you to the Tri-Cities area? and to working with students, yeah. particularly students. Like, who would want to work with students, hey? No. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Yeah, we believe God calls uh, every, uh, one of, every one of his children, and we are called also by God. Our calling was uh, to work with multicultural community and uh, refugees and newcomers. And uh, we searched basically um, over the history of Vancouver and BC, and we figured out Port Coquitlam, basically Tri-Cities, is a home to new immigrants, newcomers, refugees, uh, international students, and uh, also saying that this is very multicultural community. Uh, when I said international student newcomers, what I mean is that it's not just multicultural Canadian culture, Tri-City. It's uh, very unique. Uh, there are many Im new immigrants are coming here. That was the first reason we, we chose to come to Tri-City. And the second is that Jessica and I, we both have history, uh, why we came and chose the student ministry. Jessica uh, is uh, coming from also non-Christian family, but Christian by name. She went to college, she finished high school, went to college, and had lots of uh, challenges in her own personal life, and uh, wants to know the purpose of her life. And by God's grace, she was introduced to Campus Crusade, uh, and she accepted Jesus Christ uh, as a university student, and 
she went to China uh, in order to share God's grace and love uh, to Chinese community in China. And she lived in China for about six years, so she speaks Mandarin. <laughs> and as, as you heard, I was 24 when I came here. Uh, I can say I was illiterate. Uh, I did not know the language at all. Uh, I did not know the culture, so I have to start from the scratch. I start level one ESL, uh, and I finished my basically English, and I went to college. Uh, like all the youth and young adults here, I had uh, struggles, dreams, uh, conflicts, and one of the reasons that I chose uh, to work with the students is that I wanted to share my own uh, faith with them. Um, I wanted to show my experience with them so that they will find that God is in control in their life. He loves them. He's faithful. And to understand their skills and, uh, and gifts. Um, that's some. Thanks yeah. so much for that, Yosef. And I think, you know, when we thought about who we wanted to be as a congregation in this community, through our needs assessment back in November, multiculturalism came out. We wanted to be a community that represented the community in which we lived. And so I think this is a really uh, amazing way God works, is to bring a candidate that actually has uh, a heart and experience in multicultural ministries. So uh, thanks for that, Yosef. The next question is, what are your hopes for this role? Yeah, it's a big role. It was new to me to hear the word next generation pastor, so I had to search. Um, well, uh, my hope and dream is to be saturated by this role uh, through the work of the Spirit. Uh, of course, uh, my hope is that this role brings hope into students' life, that they find who they are and, uh, and they find their skills and gifts. So I'm hoping to develop basically their skills and gift uh, to be used by God as tools in their life. Um, I hope the Lord helped me to share my life with them, even the sad parts, because I believe all of us going through things, so it wasn't just me. Uh, I hope that God brings healing into people's lives, specifically students, and to be used by God's grace uh, for his mission and his kingdom. Thanks, Yosef. And our last question. What are your hopes for the impact this church, this church, these people can make in the lives of students and our surrounding community? Well, and though I do not know about the church yet, uh, but um, my hope for the church is to play its role, uh, to live out its faith, uh, and uh, um, to live out as a family um, before the students, uh, young adults, uh, Sunday school. Um, yeah, I hope the church and uh, the, the congregation work together. We are all church. It's a very unique question uh, to respond. Um, I Actually, I have a quote. I'd like to share it. If I find it, I need my wife. <laughs> Uh, I'm quoting from someone named Kurt Berner. Uh, He's a youth leader pastor. He said, I hope the church will provide the students with an introduction to what can be 
and what should be in terms of family, culture of faith, and pursuing a lifelong relationship with Christ. I think he put it in a good way. So my hope is that the church uh, will be a good witness uh, so, and bring hope to students' life uh, and understand them, um, show God's love and uh, grace, and also uh, be a good witness, and I myself included. Thanks, Yosef. I'd just uh, like to just pray uh, with Yosef and for Yosef and his family uh, before I step down. Dear God, we just thank you for your amazing work. We thank you for the gift of your son, and we thank you that we can play, call this community a home where we can come and learn about you and share our joys and our, our hurts. And Lord, we thank you that uh, we have a calling of this church. We have a calling to make a difference in this community and, and to make a difference in the lives of students and in the lives of everyone that attends ERBF. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a place that is welcoming to all, that really has a desire to share our faith. And I thank you so much that you have brought Yosef and Jessica and Simeon into our midst. And Lord, I pray that you would just guide our thought processes and our decisions. And I pray that you would just uh, use them in tremendous ways. I just ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you for that. It's exciting. Well, this week I picked up, I was reading a local paper over breakfast, the Tri-City News, and I was intrigued by the following headline that I saw. Terry Fox allowed my son to think of me as a hero. Hmm. I was intrigued. And in the article... Erin Daniel tells how one day she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she went to pick up her son from the elementary school and she drove with him a bit before pulling over to share the bad news. But his response stunned her. Oh, like Terry Fox, he said. And he said it in such a positive way, Danielle recalled. It allowed my son to think of me as a hero, even though he wasn't naive to what cancer was. When I read about the positive impact Terry Fox continues to have by the example that he set, I thought also of the life and legacy of Moses. Moses' life and decision to identify with people in a very deadly situation and to do whatever he could to help. If you were with us last week when we began our series on lessons from the book of Exodus, you may recall how the ominous genocidal order issued by Pharaoh that chapter 1 ends with. And today we want to pick up on that story in the next chapter, Exodus chapter 2. I invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. And if you, don't, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have extra Bibles at the back, and you just put up your hand and uh, hold it up, and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. And if you don't actually own one, you can keep that Bible for yourself then. 
Let us uh, read Exodus chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, "Uh, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. (laughs) Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Uh, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up, came to their rescue, and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, this chapter begins with a report of a child born to a Levite couple, a priestly line as it would become. Now, for the time, they are left nameless because they are a window into the very personal dilemma now facing many Hebrew couples. 
when the wife becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son. Pharaoh's cruel public order with which chapter 1 ended still hangs in the air like a death sentence. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, he had instructed his people. Such an order goes against one's parental instincts. For a mother's instinct is to protect her child, not end its life, especially a fine, the Hebrew word is good, robust, healthy, one like this. And so she decides to hide him. But as a healthy boy grows, he soon becomes probably too loud and too lively to be kept hidden at home. A new strategy will be needed if he is to survive, and their secret kept hidden from the watchful eye of the ruthless authorities. The mother decides to conceal him by putting him in a basket. The Hebrew word is tabah, which may not mean much, but it's only used elsewhere of Noah's ark. Hmm, a mini ark. She waterproofs it just like Noah did, and so it will stay afloat when she casts her son into the Nile. She's following Pharaoh's orders, right? Just keeping him safe. His older sister is charged with keeping watch over him, probably because no one thinks she's going to be a, a threat to national security. One day, one of Pharaoh's many daughters went down to the Nile to bathe, accompanied, as usual, by her many attendants. She spotted the basket among the reeds and was curious to know if there was anything in it. So she sent her female slave to fetch it. Sorry, can I get my water, please? I have to pause for a moment. Thank you. So she sends one of her attendants to fetch it. Now there was nothing, you know, you think about this, this baby, the sister, the baby's sister. What could she do, I think, but watch and pray? I wonder what went through her mind as she saw the Egyptian princess open the basket and lay her eyes on the crying baby within it. Is this the end? Pharaoh's daughter immediately recognized it as one of the Hebrew babies. And yet she did not share her father's hatred toward him. Rather, the moment she laid eyes upon him, feelings of compassion had welled up within her. I wonder if she was, even she was surprised at how disarming a baby can be. Perhaps it was the look on her face or a comment she may have made to one of her attendants, but it was clear that the Pharaoh's daughter wanted to keep the baby and the baby's sister was only too glad to be of service. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She asked. After all, this was her neighborhood. And she was a kid herself. She could spot a good mother a mile away, right? Yes, go, said the daughter of Pharaoh. So the daughter dutifully went and found, of course, the perfect person to care for her care for him. Pharaoh's daughter, totally unaware of the family connection, gave the woman 
right, before, before her strict orders to take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. After all, paying the woman would probably ensure that she did a proper job. A deal was struck, and the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And so she named him Moses. The name Moses, or Mose, is genuinely Egyptian, given the names of some of the pharaohs that we have from Egypt. Ah, Mose, Tooth, Mose. Or even Ramses, if you say it the right way, Rams, the M-S-E-S, is part of Moses. In Egyptian, it means probably born of the moon or Ramses, born of the sun. But in the Hebrew ear, it sounds an awful lot like draw out. It is unlikely that she would have known the Hebrew meaning, but later Hebrew ears could not help but hear in that name a constant reminder of the act that saved Israel's greatest leader from certain death. The irony, of course, for later readers is that while she thought, Pharaoh's daughter thought, she was the one who had drawn him, it was God who had drawn her to that place and drawn her heart to make a decision that would achieve his great and grand higher purposes. In verse 11, we are kind of catapulted rather abruptly from Moses the infant to Moses the adult. Elsewhere, in Acts, we will be told that he was 40 years old at the time. But his specific age is not important at this point. What matters most is who he will come to identify himself with. For he was born a Hebrew, but he was raised as an Egyptian with power and privilege. Who is he really? One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. I wonder if it was something he often did or whether this was a first time seeing it for himself. But it says that when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, he did something that unmasked where his true loyalties lay. In what seemed to be spontaneous, he beat the Egyptian to death and hid him in the sand. Were Moses' actions those of a noble savior? Or were they the premature, impulsive actions of a meddler? His Hebrew critic the next day will sarcastically accuse Moses of murder. But we readers are left to ponder for ourselves, what was it that prompted or compelled Moses to do what he did? Perhaps even Moses was surprised by the strength of his anger that day and his resolve to identify himself so wholeheartedly with the Hebrew people and their plight. Well, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. And Moses is forced to flee for his life far away to Midian. You can see it there on the map. And 
before the story just fast forwards and suddenly we find him probably tired and thirsty sitting beside a well. Now in ancient times, a, a well was not only a place to get much needed water in a hot climate, it was a central meeting place where travelers could meet local people, ask questions, gather information, and get an, invent, an invitation to enjoy some local hospitality in a home. Now, while hospitality was a very high value in that culture, it certainly helped if the visitor gave a good first impression. It is while resting at the community well that Moses witnessed another act of injustice. This time, a, a group of sisters arrived to water their father's flock, only to be ruthlessly driven away by some shepherds. Seeing it stirs Moses to action as he comes to their rescue and waters their flock. Clearly, his sense of justice runs deep. It compels him to act. And yet, the, the daughters of the Midian priest are perhaps too surprised, perhaps too shy to welcome him home for dinner. But when they return home, their father rule notices they are unusually early and asks the reason for it. And they tell him how an Egyptian, notice outwardly he is an Egyptian still, but he has rescued them from their usual indignity. But this Egyptian didn't stop there. He even went to the work of drawing water for them and watering the flock. That was very unusual. And what shocks the father the most, though, is that none of his daughters had invited the man home for dinner. So they do, and Moses receives a royal welcome. It should not be lost on us on how Moses was rejected by his own people in the previous scene. And he is received with open arms by foreigners in this scene. Reminds us of the one who will come named Jesus, right? Who came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well, Moses will marry Ruel's daughter Zipporah and she will give birth to a son. Now in a safe place. And, she will, and they will call him Gershom. Now, often in the Bible, names capture the essence of a, of a person, maybe their character, or a person's situation. Naming his son Gershom, you know, a foreigner there is the literal meaning in Hebrew. It's probably a statement, a marker of how his own life as an exile and a foreigner. Something he now shares in common with his Hebrew, Hebrews in Egypt. Right? And speaking of Egypt, in verses 23 to 25, the story shifts back to Egypt. A long time has passed. The king of Egypt, who had given the executive order to kill Moses, he's died. But any hopes that his death might usher in, you know, a turn of events are quickly dashed. Yet in their suffering, it, the Israelites, they turn to God. They cry out, it says, to their ultimate deliverer. And their cries for help do not fall on deaf ears. Rather, 
we read that God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, his promises that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. His heart went out to him and them, and in that lies their hope. As Rob mentioned, uh, God is a largely behind-the-scenes God in both chapters 1 and chapters 2. And yet, the story is telling us he has neither been absent and he is not oblivious. Does God know? Does God care? So often the psalmist raises that question. And when the Bible says that God remembers, it is not, you know, uh, recalling something forgotten. Oh yeah, I forgot to pick up bread on my way home from work. But it is acting on past commitments, on past promises. The past promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that have been driving the story along. Now, while it was significant how Moses responded when he saw and heard one of his own people under this ruthless oppression, it is far more significant that God himself has heard their cry and he will actively work to deliver them far more successfully than Moses, right? And the only question now that remains in this story is when and how will God do it? That is the story for next week. But there are already lessons in this story. There's two that I want to draw out. There may be, I'm sure, others that you pick up on. But two that really stood out to me. The first is that God often works in subtle but substantial ways. Not always subtle, but often in subtle and substantial ways. As I said before, the use of the word ark for Moses' basket, this little mini ark, you know, saving one son of Israel, and yet one son that would, in the end, become the greatest leader that would lead all of God's people out of Egypt. It was like Noah's story, right, being relived, reappropriated in a new situation in a new day. And yet, how God delivered Moses and Noah seems so precarious, so risky. And God's own son, Jesus, in the New Testament, will be saved from Herod's deadly orders in equally subtle ways. A dream, fleeing. Fleeing where? To Egypt. How ironic the king of the Jews in the New Testament is trying to put to death the king of the Jews, Jesus. And where does he flee? To the place where Israel had remembered as the land of slavery. Doesn't God have a sense of humor? Can't he reclaim amazing things? Egypt becomes a place of safety. Through these stories, we learn that although God is powerful, and we will see that especially in the plagues, he often savors, saves and delivers with subtle ways and means. He uses what? The Pharaoh's daughter's compassion for a baby. One of the things. He uses a mother's creativity 
even his sister's ingenuity, right? And I couldn't help but remember little big things that have happened in my own life. Things that seemed so little, and yet in the scope of things, God ended up using those to make big differences in my life. I thought about those few years that Moses' mother and his family had to train up their son. He's a preschool. He's a preschooler, probably at three years old or so. What can they learn in three years? And I thought about, I remember when I was a preschooler and I went to preschool Sunday school class for the first time. I was petrified. I was scared. I was nervous. And there was Mrs. Penner ready to greet me with this big smile on her face. And uh, two things I learned from Mrs. Penner, she loved us kids and she loved Jesus. She made me want to go to church on Sunday mornings. I credit Mrs. Penner in giving me the start of who I became. So often in the Bible, the powerless, and here it is in these stories, the women, right? In God's service, the powerless undo the powerful. Well, secondly, it matters who we, who we identify with matters to God. Who we identify with matters to God. You see, Moses chose to identify not with the people in power, but with his suffering people and their plight. It would cost him his wealth and status. It nearly cost him his life. And yet he did it. Moses' parents, they did it as well. And so did the Hebrew midwives we looked in chapter 1. Ultimately, Jesus, the even greater Moses, if you will, will come and he will identify with the suffering of his people and he too will incur the empire's wrath against him. In fact, Jesus, the only sinless one throughout history, will even willingly identify himself with sinners at his baptism. And he will willingly suffer and die on the cross to save us from certain death. And the, the Bible tells us that it is by faith that we, it's an act of identification with Jesus. It is a way of declaring our allegiance to him, if you will. Uh, I saw someone the, this morning out in the hallway, uh, they were bending over like this, they were really tying their shoe, but uh, John Van Dyke was walking by and he said, no, no, really, this is Mennonite Church, you do not have to kneel and bow before me. Okay, no, well. <laughs> but to declare one's allegiance, you think about especially before a king or the new king, will be to bow the knee. And how we identify with Jesus is to declare our allegiance to him. And Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me daily. And in Luke 9, he goes on to say, and whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, that is one of Jesus' titles, the one who comes from heaven, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It matters 
who we identify with, doesn't it? And identifying with God and his cause. And so whether it is our first time of ever declaring allegiance, maybe you've never done that before, or maybe it is declaring your allegiance to him anew, it often is, I call it an ABC. We admit our desperate need for a deliverer, for the divine deliverer, B, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. Jesus says he can forgive. He can restore our relationship with God. He can change our hearts and transform our lives so that we want to do what God wants us to do. And C, we can choose to identify with Jesus and declare our allegiance to him and to his cause. That is the opportunity he gives us. I pray that you would take advantage of that. As the worship team comes up, I want to invite us to pray together. O King of heaven, we thank you that you are not like earthly kings who so often misuse and abuse their power But you are the great king who loves to work in subtle and yet substantial ways because you are not a bully, God. You came in your son Jesus Christ as a suffering savior and you gave yourself for us so that we would not be intimidated into allegiance with you but that we would be invited that we would be drawn to this servant king. And just as Moses, their first impressions were of this servant, how much greater, Lord Jesus, are you the servant king? And this day we want to admit our need for you. We want to believe that you really are the one you say you are and you can do what you say you do. And we want to commit ourselves anew to you and to your cause so that we might experience your kingdom come and your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.